Science. Welcome to Lockdown Science on CAMFM. This show is what happens when two biologists isolate together and need to find something to do with their time other than meticulously studying the behaviour of their cat. I'm Ellie. And I'm Andrew. And if you've listened to this show before, you'll know that it is completely COVID-free. We bring you the best science news that has nothing to do with the pandemic. And usually has something to do with space or animals. Let's be honest, they're our favourite topics. Yeah, they are. Speaking of animals, the great inspiration behind this show, Suki, has been ill this week. Not with COVID, but she's had a few teeth removed and she now has a bad case of the flu, despite having had her booster. So if you hear any sneezing in the background, then that's her. Yeah, I mean, she's had a more exciting week than either of us have had for ages, but hopefully she's on the mend again now. She's actually been vaguely socialising, as long as you count that as socialising with vets. I mean, she's seen multiple vets this week. Yeah, what is it, three now? Yeah, exactly. She's getting loads of social contact. (laughs) Yeah, they all loved her, by the way. Yeah. (laughs) Obviously. Obviously. She's adorable. But anyway, I hope I'll be making her feel better later on with a study that I think she'll approve of. Oh, this is exciting. I don't know what your study is. I'm looking forward to it now. You'll have to wait and find out. Return of the cat science. (laughs) I'm not saying anything. Science of the Week. Last show, we mixed it up a bit by letting Andrew take control of the Quizmaster chair. He really thought it was going to be his chance to prove that it's not as easy as it looks, but unfortunately for him, I beat his previously high score, so he's back down, and again, he's on the receiving end of my questions. How did you feel about last show? Well, I think I made the questions easier than you do. Oh, really? And what evidence do you have for that? The score you got? I think we've not controlled a few variables. Not very scientific. I actually have no idea about this. But I don't know whether... Because we send each other bits of script for this. But I deliberately never look at the script you've written for the questions. So I am actually doing it blind. I realise I don't know what you did last week. No, completely blind. Completely. Yeah, I didn't look at all. Because... I may want to get a high score, but I'm also a goody two-shoes at heart. And the idea of cheating on a test is just a bit too much for me. That is very true. Your your inner Amy Santiago is is coming on strong there. You know what? And proud because it means that I got higher than you and I didn't cheat. (laughs) So I have a warm feeling of self-smugness. Yeah, just that warming glow of superiority. Oh, you know, it's what keeps me young. (laughs) So I'm guessing you want to crack on and show how you can do even better this week. Yeah, absolutely. Number one. On the 22nd of February, the ELSA-D mission was launched into space. What is ELSA-D? A spaceship? Uh, You're going to have to give me more than that. Oh, no. Something to explore either a planet or a moon within our solar system. No, it's definitely... That's very wrong. Okay. ELSA stands for End of Life Services by Astroscale, and the D stands for Demonstration. This sounds what? like something where we're blasting... Old people? Old people. Are we sending old people to space now? Is that... <laughs> it used to be Switzerland and now it's space. No, no, it's less devastating than that. It is testing out a spacecraft retrieval service with the ultimate mission to clean up the debris in Earth's orbit. Ah, uh, okay, that's that's relieving because that's A, much less morbid, but also B, quite good news. I know, right? We've discussed before on the show how much space junk there is floating out there around Earth's orbit. This generally consists of chunks of broken or expired satellites and bits that have been expelled during rocket launches. To get an idea of how bad this is, a report released by NASA in January said the following. 
Millions of pieces of orbital debris exist in low Earth orbit. At least 26,000, the size of a softball or larger, that could destroy a satellite on impact. Wow. Over 500,000, the size of a marble big enough to cause damage to a spacecraft or satellites. And over 100 million, the size of a grain of salt that could puncture a spacesuit. Oh, no. So that junk is putting active satellites, space missions and astronauts at risk because the more crowded the orbit gets, the more likely that collisions are going to happen. That's crazy. I knew there was a lot up there, but that's ridiculous. That is, those a are hundred million words. the size of a grain of sand and half a million the size of a marble. Yep. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of junk up there. Wow. So a few different agencies, both commercial and governmental, are developing technologies to remove debris from space. But the ELSA-D mission by a commercial company, Astroscale, is the first time that a spacecraft has actually been sent out to test how debris might be retrieved from space. On Monday, two spacecraft were sent into orbit on a Soyuz rocket. The first is a 175-kilogram servicer and the second is a 17-kilogram client. The servicer is a prototype of a satellite that can be deployed into space to grab junk and bring it down into the atmosphere so it can burn up. And the client is a test piece of junk. Ah, clever. Okay. So the servicer has proximity sensors and a magnetic docking station so it can grab the client. So first of all, that's what it's going to try. The two spacecraft will separate and the servicer will attempt to retrieve the client. So far, so simple. Well, I say that. It actually sounds really hard. Lots of maths. But then, to get a real idea of what the servicer is capable of, from the ground, scientists will put the client into various tumbles and the servicer will have to grab it even when it's flying around all out of control. Astroscale's idea is that if they can prove that this technology is practical, government agencies and private companies that send satellites and rockets into space can in future pay them to go and pick up their junk afterwards. Like a garbage service for space. Very cool. So it's slightly more complicated than what I was imagining, which is essentially that you'd have a kind of giant hoover thing. So <laughs> <laughs> that it, it's just going around kind of sucking up bits willy-nilly, but it's actually done on, on magnets and then it throws them through the Earth's atmosphere. It does. And it sounds like the client has a particular plate that docks with the servicer, right? Which at the moment, all that junk doesn't have. Uh, so I think okay. that the idea is that this is a prototype that shows that in future if companies or agencies are sending rockets out they can potentially do it with these plates attached yeah. so that the servicer can then go up and collect them right that doesn't help so much with the small bits but the problem is that the big bits end up becoming small bits yeah so if you can collect them quick enough you actually end up getting rid of quite a lot of future space debris yeah. of like the smaller size but it's a solution for cleaning up the future problem rather than solving the past problem kind i of thing. think so so the servicer does have a magnetic plate mm. so i guess theoretically you could do something with that because a lot of what goes up there is metal but i think it would be tricky to just grab something based on magnets if there was no docking system yeah that seems harder yeah so astroscale are not the only people doing this they're just the first ones to actually test it in space so maybe we'll find that there are some future programs which don't even need the client aka the junk to have something on it and that'll be great i mean maybe like a space hoover i don't know 
Yeah. I'm just imagining something very kind of cartoony with an enormous bag that sort of flies around the earth and just ends up looking a little bit like sort of Santa with his big bag of presents. But... Just send Santa. Maybe, yes. Yeah. yeah, I mean, what does he do for the rest of the year? Lazy. Yeah. So the funny thing is, which I found out, was that at the moment there are no laws about collecting what you leave in space, but there are best practice guidelines. So the guidelines say that within 25 years of a mission ending, you're meant to get that stuff out of space. So what they currently do is they tend to put it on an orbit so that it basically throws itself back into the atmosphere and burns up. Uh, but okay. that doesn't work if the satellite itself kind of goes out of control or just dies because it can't set itself onto that path. Yeah, so there's sort of guidelines, but realistically, most of the time... They're either not followed or it doesn't work. Yeah, apparently NASA are very compliant. Mm. Other agencies, not so much. Because it used to be that it was really governmental agencies who were in space. Now that's just not true, right? There are so many private companies sending like satellites or other kind of technology out there. Yeah. So it's becoming a bit of a free-for-all. Number two, on the Shetland island of Yell, great name by the way, which type of renewable energy can drivers now power their cars with? Ooh. Shetlands is going to surely either be wind or tidal. And which one are you going with? I'm going to go with tidal. Yes, tidal energy. An Edinburgh-based company, Nova Innovation, has been harnessing tidal power off the coast of the Shetland Islands for years now using underwater turbines. Now, until recently... They've been using this energy generated to power homes and businesses. But they have just opened the first tidal-powered electric car charging port on the island of Yell. Mm. To me, these kind of innovations are exciting because, I don't know, one of the things that kind of puts me off buying an electric car, other than the price, obviously, is the availability of charging ports. So it feels like having a diverse range of companies working on creating more ports is overall a good thing. Yeah, definitely. And actually, I, I sort of feel like maybe somewhere like a remote Scottish island is somewhere where it's going to get a really high uptake. Because generally in these places, petrol is actually really expensive because it's so hard to get it there. And also, if you're predominantly driving around an island, there's a limit to how far you can go. And therefore, you don't need many electric charging ports to actually just service the island and it's kind of fine for for everyone you know the big problem is that if you wanted to take your car from you know london to edinburgh you'd have to kind of plan the route around where you can charge it whereas if you're just driving around a small area it's not so much of a problem well exactly yeah and the thing is that like lots of types of renewable energy tidal power has got lots of pros and cons right obvious pros are that it's renewable it doesn't release harmful gases into the atmosphere and it's more predictable than solar power because the tides move regardless of what the weather's doing but there are also concerns that it can affect fish migrations and that sea life can get caught up in the turbines, which is very similar to the worries that people have about wind power turbines and birds, you know. Yeah. But if we're looking at this from a purely emissions point of view, this is very cool news. And it essentially provides a way to make electric car charging more reliable and green. So I think that's kind of overall a very cool concept. Also, it's just very exciting to think that the moon creates tides and then tides create the energy that goes into cars. So basically the moon is driving our cars. Tell me I'm wrong. Yeah, no, that's... Uh, you gotta, you can't argue with that logic. Thank They're you. They're moon cars. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Number three. 
At the start of March, a group of engineers from the US suggested an idea for a global insurance policy. This was a twist on Noah's Ark. What was it? I don't know. Uh, something about preserving the genetic code of a whole load of species? Yes. I mean, that's kind of... Okay. I was going to say, that's kind of done already in seed banks for plants, but it doesn't yeah. work for animals. So, okay. Preserving the genetic code of a few individuals of all animal species on Earth? I'm going to give you half a point for that. Okay. A solar-powered lunar arc. I don't see how these two things are linked. (laughs) (laughs) That is a storage facility on the moon for eggs, sperm and seeds from 6.7 million Earth species. Okay. (laughs) This idea was presented by University of Arizona researcher Dr. Jekyll Thanger at an aerospace conference earlier this month as a way to safeguard Earth's biodiversity against catastrophes like rising sea levels, asteroids and massive volcanic eruptions. As you said, we already have something a little bit like this on Earth, the Svalbard Seed Bank in Norway, which is a storage facility for hundreds of thousands of seeds, basically set up to protect against plant extinctions. But Thanga points out that with rising sea levels, even this kind of facility could be at risk. The idea is to build his lunar arc within defunct lava tubes under the surface of the moon. These are basically huge tunnels created by ancient volcanic activity on the moon, which will provide a protected, stable place for the facility to be constructed. You look so sceptical. I think my, my main question is how many millions, if not billions of dollars, is this thing going to cost? And would we not be better off spending that money in taking major steps towards actually just looking after the earth properly and not removing the need for this thing no because one thing that he's saying is is one of the things that can destroy biodiversity is not just humans but also meteors and volcanic eruptions okay right? but i mean what's actually destroying biodiversity is humans right anyway like, if hear him we out. fix the fee- <laughs> we fix the human problem and then we can worry about the fact that yeah one day a meteor might come along i think you're being very dismissive Thanga's plan is for the facility to be built within these underground tunnels with lift shafts providing access from the lunar surface and the freezers needed within the facilities to keep the specimens frozen could be powered by solar panels on the surface. Now, I feel like you're still looking at me like it's stupidly unrealistic. And yes, maybe it is. But (laughs) Thanga's argument is that if you transport 50 samples from each of the 6.7 million species, you would need to send about 250 rockets to the moon, which may sound like a lot, and yes, probably increase global warming, but it's not completely without precedent, seeing as it took 40 rocket launches to build the International Space Station. So this is only six times that. I mean, what's 250 rocket launches between friends? Yeah, and that's the rocket launches to get the samples up there. Yes. Excluding the rocket launches needed to actually build the facility in the first place. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I'm going to file this under the nice idea, not the best use of money, slightly mad, probably causes more problems than it solves. I would probably agree with that. But <laughs> is it not a very exciting, innovative idea? It's definitely innovative, yeah. And, you know, I I have no doubt that it's the sort of thing that probably is actually feasible. I'm just not sure. What's the say? Just because you can doesn't mean you should? That's literally on the door of the lab I work in. So it is my mantra for life. (laughs) Exactly. It's a good mantra. Number four. 
what surprising animal has turned up on the coast of Pembrokeshire? Oh, no, this uh, this is one that I should know. Yeah, you really uh, should. And I don't. On the coast? Yeah. As in, actually on the land? It came onto the land. Okay. I mean, it came onto the beach. It didn't then, like, go for a coffee in the town centre. Is it... <laughs> Is it a stranded whale? No, but... Is it a stranded shark? No. No, you're going further away. Stick on the mammal theme. A stranded dolphin? No. It's not It's not stranded. It's pretty happy. Okay. Oh, hang on. Maybe I did hear about this. Was it a walrus? It was a walrus. Oh. Yes, an Atlantic walrus, which has been dubbed Wally. And he's become a bit of an unfortunate celebrity because last weekend he was spotted on a rock on the west coast of Wales. What appears to be the same individual was also spotted a few days earlier off the coast of Ireland. Now, the strange thing is, as you know, walruses are not meant to be in the UK. Yeah. They're usually found in the Arctic and there have been, you know, very occasional sightings in the UK, like the one that appeared on the coast of Scotland in 2018. But then before that 2018 sighting, no walruses had been spotted on the UK mainland for 54 years. So this really is a very rare occurrence. Yeah. The reason, maybe you're going to go on to this. The reason why I suddenly realised I'd heard about this was because of the theory about how he got here. Yes. So so what have was, you heard? So I, I heard that the suggestion was that he fell asleep on a an iceberg that kind of floated south and then melted underneath him and has kind of dumped him way further south than he should be. Which I just sort of felt like... I don't know. That's something I kind of associate with. You're just having a little schnoozle on an iceberg. You don't realise what time it is. You oversleep your alarm and then the next thing you know, you've you've drifted south of Scotland and you're sort of lost away from home. Happens all the time, mate. Yeah. I was reading something. The RSPCA, who received a lot of calls about Wally, do think that he came from Greenland. He may have fallen asleep on an ice floe that broke free and he just travelled into our warmer waters. But another suggestion is that he came on his own steam searching for food or because he got spooked by a loud noise and unwittingly travelled all the way here. Mm. It's it's not possible to tell, basically. But what we do know is that Wally is a juvenile because his tusks are quite short. Oh, okay. What we don't know is Wally's sex. So I'm referring to Wally as a he because the name makes me think of Where's Wally, who was a guy. But in juveniles, you can't really tell from afar what sex an individual is. Walruses are dangerous, though, and can get easily agitated. So it's just not worth anyone getting close to Wally to find out. It's not worth it to them. It's not worth it to him. You know, leave him alone. So what's happening? Is he just being left there? Or is there any kind of rescue attempt going on? No, no, I think he's actually, like, by the time that we're recording this, I think he's set off again. Oh, okay. Yeah. So Mm. apparently this, this happens. When they come, they eventually just leave And because they don't get stranded, you know, they're sort of in control of the situation. Yeah. Because people don't bother them and put collars on them, we don't know what happens next. Yeah. But the assumption was that he's okay. Apparently he's a bit underweight, but otherwise looks healthy. So hopefully he'll be okay. Hope he can swim home. Yeah. When I say Wally is dangerous, obviously the tusks are treacherous, but also his sheer size. Apparently... He's about the size of a cow. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's big. You wouldn't stand much of a chance if Wally took a disliking to you. Yeah, the, that's that's a crushing situation pretty quickly. <laughs> Literally crushing. <laughs> Number five. What is this noise? Oh. 
Ooh, interesting. It sounds a little bit like somebody dragging some heavy pots and pans across a floor. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to guess maybe a glacier moving? No, actually, I think that's a really good shout. It does sound a lot like a glacier moving. It's not. It is the sound of Perseverance's wheels moving over the Martian landscape. Oh, cool. Yeah. So a few weeks ago, we were talking about the Perseverance mission, and I mentioned that it was equipped with microphones. Mm -hmm. Now, that clip that I just played you is a cleaned up part of the first ever audio returned of a rover driving on Mars, which I think somehow makes the whole mission feel more real, you know, because it sounds kind of gritty and clunky. It just makes it easier to visualise the event. Yeah, it puts the whole thing into like real senses rather than just kind of being a nice CGI image of a rover on the surface. Yeah, exactly. As Vandy Verma, a senior engineer and rover driver at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory said, a lot of people, when they see the images, don't appreciate that the wheels are metal. So that's why it's making these harsh grinding noises because you're essentially listening to metal crunching over rocks. Yeah, I wouldn't have realised that either. Yeah. I, I was gonna, actually going to ask you why does it sound metallic? Because yeah. in my head, I just you just assume that it's got kind of rubber tyres on. But I guess they don't because they can get punctured and then it wouldn't be able to move. Yeah, metal's tough, right? Mm. But it means it does, it does make that horrific kind of noise. But it's quite sweet when you think that that's actually coming from so far away. The little rover just pooting along. Yeah, that's amazing. This audio is actually coming from Perseverance's entry, descent and landing microphone. The real purpose of which was to record those phases of the mission. But it didn't actually manage to record audio from the entry and landing. (laughs) but it's still operational. So they've used it to collect this audio from it just pootling along the surface. Oh, so there's not... I thought you were going to say there was a separate mic that they were actually going to use for the surface recordings, but they weren't even planning to collect the surface recordings at all. No, no, they do have also another microphone for surface recordings, and that has been picking up sounds of wind already, and that was the mic they expected to use on the surface. Mm. But this is one that they wouldn't really expect to be functional still at this point. Okay. But it is, and they have this audio from it, so they're sharing it. What I find particularly brilliant about this microphone is that it's just an off-the-shelf commercial model rather than being something specifically designed for a Martian spacecraft. Oh, weird. Yeah. So I, I looked it up. I couldn't actually find out exactly what make and model it is. But could you imagine the marketing that that company could use? I mean, all high-end mic companies like to say that their mics are of, you know, sturdy build quality. But this one has actually survived the seven minutes of terror while Perseverance landed on Mars. I would buy that mic. That's mad. That's amazing. Yeah, (laughs) it's crazy. I just love how they also just shoved a, like, shop-bought mic on the side. Yeah, I thought thought everything at NASA was, like, you know, purpose-built and bespoke. Yeah, and the other mic is. Yeah. The mic that they meant to use on the surface. Exactly. Very high-tech. Yeah. Whereas this one, they, what, ran out of budget and sort of just bought something off the shelf instead? (laughs) no idea i don't i don't know whether it was because they only expected it to be during that landing phase where they didn't really care so much about the audio and they wanted to test it i'm not i have no idea i couldn't find this through like all of my research but anyway this mic is actually hugely sturdy mm. and it's still doing its thing amazing so at the end of that round you got two and a half Woo! which you know 50 is not your worst score i think no not by a long way <laughs> I say not by a half. You actually got. Less I think than I got two. one one week. Oh, so Maybe. proud. Yeah, I think I've got. I've I, my range is one to four. So how are you feeling about getting back into the quizmaster seat on a later episode? Mm, I don't know. I mean, it was kind of fun doing it, so I'm not against it. But 
Also, also... hashtag effort. Yeah, exactly. Journal Club. Right, well, it's that exciting time of the week again where we find out what new research you have got for me. So, tell me about your paper, Andrew. Well, I'm resorting to type this week because I've got another listener suggestion. Have you? Yeah. Avid listener and cat obsessive Kate has been in touch and pointed me towards this week's paper on whether cats are able to read and understand social behaviours. Ooh. Mm. That's interesting. I'm going to go with no, but please do go ahead. (laughs) Okay. So is it important to you whether someone is nice to you? Yes, I am... A people pleaser to a fault. So clearly that bothers me. Okay. And is it important to you whether they're nice to other people? Yeah, definitely. I always judge people who are mean to people in the service industry, Mm. right? I feel like that's one of the easiest ways to tell if someone's like a nice person or not. Yeah. How they are to people in clothes shops and people who are like waiting tables. So yes, Yeah. Okay, good. That's the right two answers, I think. Not least because it probably shows you're not a nutter. (laughs) (laughs) At least not in that way. Yeah, I mean, probably in many other ways. But, you know, on on this front, you're all good. So, as a highly social species, humans are programmed to monitor the behaviour of others in social environments and to learn about other people through their behaviours. So if we observe someone being nasty or even just unhelpful to other people, we're less likely to want to associate them or ask them for help ourselves, just like you were saying. It's a pretty useful social learning response, and it appears to develop really early. Even three-year-old children are less likely to help an adult who they've observed harming another adult compared to a neutral adult. Really? Yeah, apparently so. That is so interesting. Yeah. I mean, it makes a lot of sense, right? Because it's almost like a protection mechanism, because you think, if that person is being nasty to others, I can't trust them myself. Yeah. Exactly. In an enhanced social environment, it's an important skill to learn. But like many things, this isn't a uniquely human ability. So lots of studies have looked at how other social animals, such as a range of primates and dogs, respond to observing actors either giving or refusing to give food to either a conspecific animal, i.e. something of the same species as as the animal being tested, or a human. And my favourite example of this because it actually comes from a natural environment and doesn't involve humans, is that of fish which attend cleaning stations on coral reefs. Yes. Mm. So you've seen this on TV, and I'm sure many of our listeners probably have as well. But at these cleaning stations, cleaner rats gather and pick parasites off queues of larger species like groupers and sharks and turtles. And these cleaner rats primarily eat parasites which live on the larger animal scales, which is beneficial for the rats because they get a meal, And it's beneficial for the fish or the turtle because it gets rid of the parasites. But sometimes the cleaner wrasse try to supplement their diet with a bit of mucus, which the fish produce to protect their scales. This is good for the wrasse, but bad for the fish. So the client fish actually watch the behaviour of the wrasse. And if they see a wrasse feeding on another fish's mucus, they're more likely to avoid going to that individual for a clean than if they only observe them removing other fish's parasites. It's like first-hand Yelp reviews. Yeah, exactly, yeah. The, the, the Yelp of the reef. Yeah. Now, some of these studies have been criticised because they all focus on exchanges of food. And so the animal may just be making simple associations on where they're more likely to get food from, rather than understand the idea of social behaviour. And this has led to experiments where capuchin monkeys and dogs have been shown a scene where a human actor attempts to get an object from a jar. So there's no particular food involved, it's just something that they're they're kind of trying to do. 
After a couple of attempts, the actor then turns to a second person to ask them for help. The second person either helps open the jar and retrieve the item, or refuses and turns away from the person asking the question. Okay, it? they don't just like kick the jar and run off. <laughs> no, no, it's it's all very it's all very kind of placid. But I think I my impression from the paper is that they do this with very sort of deliberate movements mm. where they they don't make any eye contact with the animal watching, but they make eye contact between the actors and sort of have this very obvious kind of I'm turning away now and I'm not doing this. So this is a really dull soap opera. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's amazing what these animals will watch. <laughs> The monkeys and dogs were then offered food by both the person who did the helping or the refusing and either the original actor or a third unrelated bystander who was kind of on the scene the whole time but didn't actually engage in the helping or asking for help, etc. Oh, wow. So they're literally meeting the celebrities from the soap opera they've just been watching on TV. Yeah. Oh, no, it's not on TV. It's live. It's like oh. theatre, darling. Oh. The, the, the actors are there in front of them. It's like a stage. Wait, so at the moment we can't go to the theatre, but there are potentially lab animals watching live performances. Yeah, seemingly so. These thrilling dramas of man trying to get object from jar. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I haven't seen theatre in so long. I think I'd watch that. <laughs> So the interesting thing is that in both cases, the monkeys and the dogs were less likely to accept food from the person who refused to help than from the original actor or the neutral bystander. But they showed no preference for the helper over the neutral person. So this suggests that the animals have a negativity bias, i.e. they're paying more attention to, or at least are more likely to learn from, the negative behaviour of refusing to help than the positive behaviour of helping. Oh, they're not weird. really responding to the positive behaviour, but they're responding to the negative behaviour. Yeah, okay. And the authors suggest that this is possibly because there's a greater survival value in social animals. So just as you said about the people and the fact that three-year-olds can learn this, it's because there's a, a distinct advantage to learning who you don't want to associate with. So where do cats come into this? Well, as I've said, these studies have currently been done on social animals, which naturally live in groups and therefore are more likely to need to learn about other individuals' behaviour. Cats, however, are solitary and so are less likely to have a need for social learning. However, because cats are domesticated and live with humans, they may have developed some of these behaviours since their domestication. So as we've discussed before, cats have learned other social behaviours, such as recognising their owner's voice, and apparently being able to discriminate human emotional states. Mm. So maybe they're clued in to their owner's interactions with other people. So in this study by Hitomi Chijiwa and colleagues, 36 cats observed their owners playing the actor in the same kind of scenario as the dog and the monkey tests. Two experimenters sat on either side of the cat's owner, one playing the neutral person and the other either helping or refusing to help when asked by the owner. Now, the cats used in these studies came from either private households or cat cafes. Oh. And the authors know... <laughs> Brilliant oh. reaction. Just the word cat cafes and you're feeling all warm and snuggly. Oh, cat cafes, yeah. The cat cafes where it's like a way of adopting out shelter cats. Adorable. Yeah. So the authors note that while the experimenters were complete strangers to the household cats, they were, quote, not completely unfamiliar to the cat cafe cats as they had visited the cafes a few times. <laughs> I feel like you would be quite happy to help with an experiment that gave you an excuse to visit more cat cafes. 
I would be fine with that, actually. Yeah, yeah. I could do it for science. Yeah, and that's how we'd end up adopting 200 million cats. <laughs> CQ would be so unimpressed. <laughs> so deeply upset by it. Although they included data from these 36 cats, a further 11 cats were excluded because they failed to complete sequence of trials due to low motivation. <laughs> Does that mean they just lay down and <laughs> slept? So, yeah, so that's nearly a quarter of the cats that they tried just essentially couldn't be bothered and weren't interested. <laughs> Excellent. And that's despite the fact that the demonstration sequence had to be shortened to just 10 to 15 seconds because the pilot testing showed that it was harder to maintain the cat's attention than it was in the dog study. So so essentially dogs will sit and watch their owners do anything, whereas cats are like, mm, I'm bored. Relatable, this, to be honest. This this displeases me. <laughs> Poor Lick. <laughs> Even then, the owners sometimes had to get the cat's attention again partway through the demonstration by, like, shaking the jar with them to make a noise or something. <laughs> what? <laughs> We really are just owned by cats, aren't we? Yeah. They control us. Yeah, 100% they call the shots. So I think one of my conclusions from this is that cats are not fans of science. No, no, that's true. Except Suki, because she loves this show. Yeah, she does. Yeah, she's all, she's big into promoting it. Yeah. Anyway, the cats were shown the same sequence of events as the dogs have been, where the owner tried to open a container before asking for help, and then having that help either provided or refused. The cats were then offered food by the two experimenters, and the choice was determined as the first person that the cat approached to sniff, lick, or take food from. (laughs) And each cat was given four demonstrations and four choices. So, Mm. what do you reckon? Did cats show a preference for taking food from helpers, or, like dogs and monkeys, an avoidance of taking food from people who refuse to help? Well, okay, so I feel like most science, sadly, that gets published does not contain negative results, right? So I feel like the answer is going to be that cats do show a preference for the person that helps, or at least show a negative reaction to the person who didn't help. But also, I've had cats my whole life, and I feel like all the cats I've had, as wonderful as they are, would not care they would just take food from the first person they see so like genuinely thinking about it i think cats just choose completely at random you're right they didn't care at all really? okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh good some negative results i love yeah. negative results there was no effect of helper slash refuser the age or the sex of the cat or the home environment whether they were a cafe cat or a house cat on the cat's choices weirdly 13 of the 36 cats, so that's over a third, all systematically just chose the person on the same side of the experiment, regardless of (laughs) what they've been doing or who it was. Because you know what? Cats are pragmatic. Yeah. They see food and they take it, right? Or maybe they're just highly trusting. They just think that, yeah, sure, that person caused problems for that other person, but they wouldn't do something horrible to me, a cat. Well, yeah, because I, I as a cat, am a higher being. And therefore, who would possibly do anything horrible? Well, maybe. Precisely. Yeah. So essentially, either cats cannot recognise altruistic or antisocial behaviour, or if they can it certainly doesn't affect who they choose to associate with. I love it. And it's just what I would expect. Yeah, they are so sassy. They don't care. They don't care what goes on in like human soap operas. Yeah. It's completely different. This bores me. I will take the food now. Yeah. 
<laughs> to be fair, I think the cat would take food from both people if it could at exactly <laughs> the same time. <laughs> Suki certainly would. What's your paper this week? Well, I think my study this week gives a practical suggestion for people who are, you know, maybe after lockdown, are trying to fit into a situation where they feel like they don't really belong, but they want to blend in seamlessly. You know the thing, like you're at a friend's party and you suddenly find out that all their other friends are much cooler than you and you want to kind of fly under the radar, act cool and get accepted into the group. So people don't realise that you're the token nerd. Not coming from personal experience, obviously not. I was going to say, so this is every party I've ever been to. (laughs) (laughs) I have a solution for you, my friend. (laughs) Usually my plan for this is just that when people ask me what I do, I remind myself not to excitedly start word vomiting about the wonders of Beetle anal fluids. But (laughs) what if I told you that there was another way? What, to not talk about science? (laughs) I don't... I don't understand. That's a new concept. Slow what? breathing. Calm down. It's okay. <laughs> you could just cling onto the waist of someone who does fit in and pretend to be part of them so that nobody notices you at all. And you're just creepily hanging on behind somebody like a sort of parasite. Well, this is pretty much what a species of beetle does. Okay. 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 I thought you were doing a human study. I'm not doing a human study. <laughs> I'm just being ridiculous again, don't worry about it. So this week, my PhD supervisor, Becky Kilner, tweeted about a cool natural history discovery. So I checked it out, and I decided it needed to be on the podcast. This is actually from a 2017 paper called Nymphista chronoeri, an army ant-associated beetle species with an exceptional mechanism of foracy, where authors Von Buren and Tushetchkin first described a species of beetle which they had discovered and they called it Nymphista chronoeri. Now, although this paper is from 2017, I hadn't heard of the species before, and I work on beetles, so I feel like it's something that a lot of listeners may not have come across either. So I'm going to get on to what this beetle's cool adaptation is in just a minute. But first, a little bit of background so that you can fully appreciate it. This beetle was found in Costa Rica, where there is, you know, huge biodiversity in general, but also a lot of species of ants. Now, I think you'll agree with me, ants are a seriously undervalued group of creatures. Yeah, 100%. Because we tend to think of ants as, you know, invading our picnics, getting all up in our houses. But actually, tens of thousands of species of ants have been discovered and they're all just essential to ecosystems. They're an important part of decomposing and turning over nutrients. They're seed dispersers. And there are also lots of species that are adapted to take advantage of ants. So... In that way, they spawn lots of new biodiversity. Yeah, I mean, I remember, so I was I was lucky enough to go to Peru about 10 years ago, and I was out in the jungle there. And the thing that really struck me when I was flicking through the bird book was how many species of bird are named ant something. Mm. And it's and it's just like, you know, people sort of joke about, well, the rainforest is kind of run by insects, particularly it's run by ants, and there are, there are ants everywhere. And it's true, there are ants everywhere. But it sort of shows when you just, you've got probably hundreds of birds that have ant in their name, because they're all just, they you know, that's their primary food source. Yeah, so and if the like, ants weren't there, what would the birds eat? Exactly, yeah. So yeah, this point about ants sort of spawning other biodiversity is important for this study. There are lots of, in particular, arthropods that associate with ants because many species of ants are voracious predators that collect lots of food. So then many species of arthropods become adapted to associate with them because essentially it's a good way for them to also get a supply of high quality food. Species that are evolved to associate with ants are called, do you know? 
Myrmecophiles. Yes, Myrmecophiles. Literally, ant lovers. And we see lots of adaptations that have evolved in Myrmecophiles to facilitate this lifestyle. Basically, features that allow them to ingratiate themselves with their particular ant species, escape detection by ants so that they can steal some of their food, or mechanisms to protect themselves against ants if it all goes sideways. Often, these associations are very specific, so that these mimecophile species have adaptations that only allow them to associate effectively with one species of ant. Von Buren and Tshetskin were particularly focusing on army ants, which is actually a relatively broad term. There are multiple species of army ants in Costa Rica. The interesting thing about army ants is that their colonies have two phases, a stationary phase and a nomadic one. Basically, they don't make a colony and stay in it until they die or it gets destroyed. They move their colony every couple of days. So this means that any mimecophiles associated with them need to move too. Mm. It's been well documented before that there are different tactics here. So some mimecophile arthropods hitch a ride on the back of ants and some follow along. But this new species of beetle, Nymphista cronoeri, has a particularly cool adaptation to allow it to travel with the ants and escape detection. It hitches a ride on the back of worker army ants of the species Ecaton mexicanum by using its long mandibles, which is basically another word for its jaws, to clasp onto the ant's waist. Mm. Okay, so this is pretty cool, right? But you don't look super impressed. We know that some arthropods hitch a ride on ants, so what? Well... This beetle is shaped, coloured and positioned such that it looks just like the ant's rear end. If you look closely, you can see that the ant appears to have two bums, but one of them is real and one of them is a sneaky hitchhiking beetle. Oh, weird. Yeah. The beetle even tucks in its antennae and legs so that it looks more like a rounded backside. That's so bizarre. But why? Why are they so perfectly adapted? Because, so I I could see why they would need to be adapted in terms of kind of smelling right or something, because that's how ants are kind of sensing what's going on. But to be camouflaged as we perceive them in terms of shape and colour and stuff seems slightly more bizarre. So is it is it something to do with having to kind of fit through gaps that the ants go through or to not be obvious to predator like to birds or something? Now that's a really good point. So the first question that they ask is whether it's to avoid predators. But the authors think that this is unlikely because the beetles were only found to be hitchhiking during nighttime colony movements. Hmm. So any nocturnal predators are unlikely to be so dependent on sight that these kind of adaptations would give them any real benefit. So the main hypothesis is that they allow the beetles to avoid detection by other ants in the colony. Essentially, this beetle is going incognito so that it can get into the colony and steal some of the ants' food. So the ants aren't going to take kindly to that kind of behaviour if they notice. In fact, its morphology provides another clue that would suggest that this is the real reason. The authors inspected the beetle's cuticle, which is essentially its hard outer casing, and they found that its texture and the density of its setae, those are the tiny hair-like structures on it, almost perfectly mimicked the surface of their ant hosts. That's really cool. This is important because worker ants are known to inspect each other with touch. Ah, So by not just looking like an ant bum, but also feeling like an ant bum, whenever another ant comes over for a feel, they'll still go undetected. 
Ah, genius. That so I, I was actually I was actually going to ask you that as to whether there was an ant behavior there where they check each other. So that almost implies that like the ants kind of cottoned on to the fact that the beetles were doing this, presumably when the beetles just look like beetles. And so there's been this arms race for mm. the beetles to to evolve more and more elaborate crypsis so that the ants can't spot them because the ants have evolved the behavior to check. Yeah, but they feel That's just so like an ant weird. bum. It's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. So there you have it. Next time you want to fly under the radar somewhere that you don't feel like you belong, just attach yourself to somebody who does and pretend to be part of them. Who says we don't provide practical advice on this show? Animal Etymologies This week I was thinking about which classes of animals I haven't represented very well on Animal Etymology yet. And I reckon I haven't fully given the reptiles their turn. Mm, okay. You know that I like to bring up animals that have both a good common name and a good scientific name. So this week, I'm going to ask whether you know what Sternoterus odoratus is. Something smelly. Mm? Reptiles that smell. I'm not sure. No, I don't know. It's the common musk turtle, otherwise mm. known as the stink pot. Or, <laughs> brilliantly in some places, stink and gym. <laughs> This turtle is native to the eastern US and southeastern Canada and gets the unfortunate name Stinkpot from the fact that if it feels threatened, it can release a foul smell from a gland on its underside, which is a pretty nifty skill, I'd say. Yeah. What is it about American animals? Yeah, and, and like sp- skunks. skunks. Stinkpots. <laughs> they, they clearly have a lot of people bothering them. Yeah. Although it's generally described as a musky smell, some people also describe it as smelling like bad BO. So it's not something you really want around you. Although these turtles spend most of their time in shallow waters munching on aquatic invertebrates. So usually you wouldn't be privy to their stink. But they're also widely kept as pets. So really, in that case, I'd say it's kind of your fault if you're subjected to the stench. That's a bold choice of pet. (laughs) Keeping a skunk as a cat, you know. It's like you're really asking for it at that point. Yeah. So does the smell work underwater then? That's a really good point. I'm not sure. Yeah. I'm not sure whether it's it works underwater or whether it's when they come out onto shore. It really, yeah, you know. Because they have to bask and stuff. Yeah. So for this to be animal etymology, I also have to talk about their scientific name. So their scientific name also references their stinky talent. The genus name Sternoterus comes from the ancient Greek words sternon, meaning breast or chest, and thyros, meaning hinge. So they have a hinge chest, which refers to their morphology. Quite simply, they have a hinge running underneath their chest. Nothing too exciting there. But like you said, their species name, Odoratus, is Latin for smelly or odorous. But what I would say is, all is not lost for the reputation of this little turtle. Although they clearly got the species name because people think they smell bad, and clearly the turtle also thinks it smells bad because they use it against predators... In Latin, odoratus doesn't always have to refer to a bad smell. It can also mean scented or sweet-smelling and fragrant. So really, the Latin name leaves it open for interpretation. Is it the stink pot or the fragrant pot? Up to you. Well, I'll have to go and give one a sniff and I'll let you know. (laughs) I think that if you pick it up and give it a sniff, it'll probably let you have a taste. It'll let me know. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Isolation Recommendations Okay, so we don't have that long in the UK left in full-on lockdown, but we are still, you know, trapped in our houses. So what are you recommending this week? Well, over the next couple of weeks, I recommend that people go and check out the events going on at Earth Optimism. 
Earth Optimism is a global movement aimed at reframing the way we think about conservation, moving away from doom and gloom and telling stories of hope and some of the amazing successes that conservation has had. Not only that, but it aims to empower people with the solutions they need to support nature conservation. So from the 26th of March to the 4th of April, Earth Optimism Cambridge, led by the Cambridge Conservation Initiative, are running a series of free online events which anyone can join. These range from conservation-focused films to tours of specimens within lightning stories in the Museum of Zoology and the Cambridge University Botanic Gardens, to talks and Q&As with scientists, practitioners, students and TV presenters about reasons for optimism, sustainability and success stories of saving species and transforming ecosystems. And it all rounds off with a conversation between David Attenborough and Liz Bonin. Now, while all of the events are free, some of them do need to be booked in advance. So check out earthoptimism.cambridgeconservation.org to find out what's going on and how to book. And I should also say that there are similar events running from late March through much of April happening in Kenya, Brazil, Australia and the USA, all online and all available globally. So you can get the same dose of positive conservation vibes from five different continents. Wow. Oh, that sounds really, that sounds like a sort of, yeah, just a nice thing to do. You get comfy on your sofa, you just watch some good news. Because things like nature documentaries are brilliant. I love nature documentaries. But you sometimes can be left feeling somewhat depressed after yeah. them. So this is a chance to, you know, engage with conservation and actually feel pretty good about the situation, right? It's empowering. Exactly, yeah. I think a lot of the, the films are on particularly the first week, I think, and they're often on at eight in the evening. So Friday, Saturday, Sunday night, this weekend. Oh, pizza night. Are, yeah, pizza night, Earth Optimism film. Why not? Love it. What have you got this week? Well, this week, I'm going to recommend the Cambridge Festival, which I assume has coincided with Earth Optimism on purpose rather than them being like at war with each other, you know? Yeah. They're both free. They're both online. They're both about science. I have no idea whether it was deliberate or not. Yeah. Anyway, more stuff for your diary. Usually the Cambridge Festival would only be relevant if you live in Cambridge because it's a lot of hands-on activities and talks in person. But this year, because of the pandemic, it's all taking place online and that means that anyone can attend the sessions. Now, usually Cambridge University hosts the Science Festival and then the Festival of Ideas at different times in the year. And the Science Festival is, you know, what it says in the tin and the Festival of Ideas is more of an arts and humanities focus. But now they're combining them into one big Cambridge festival. And it starts on the 26th of March, which is tomorrow, if you're listening to this on the day of release. There's a mixture of talks, panel discussions and activities for all ages. So some serious, some lighthearted. Just head over to festival.cam.ac.uk to see all of the listings. There's absolutely tons. Now, in particular, I thought I'd highlight one little event. It's called Battle of the Beasts, and I would like it because I'm hosting it. Shameless plug coming. It's a fun, live, interactive game show where experts from the Museum of Zoology and the Department of Zoology at Cambridge battle to convince the audience, that could be you, that their animal is best in various categories. And then the audience members get to vote live for who they think should win. I'll be there revealing the winners and telling you all about some of my favourite beasts. Also, I should mention that it's totally free and you can watch it on the university's YouTube page at 7pm tomorrow. So that's Friday the 26th. And if you miss it, I think it's also going to be available afterwards on the university's YouTube channel. I I should say, I haven't heard what 
all of the panelists are doing, but I have heard your preparations for your bits and it sounds really fun. Oh, thank um, you. I, I didn't I, even ask him to say that. No, she didn't. I, I mean, you're hosting it, but you've also got some of your own little factoids in there, which are sort of, you know, think animal etymologies. It's, yeah. it's that kind of vibe. So We love a nerdy fact. And, right? and also the panellists they've got on there are all really enthusiastic and absolutely love the species that they're talking about. So I think it's going to be a really good show. It's going to be a lot of fun. I'm very excited. And yes, you can watch it afterwards. But if you watch it at the time, you can be part of the interactive events. If you want more info on it, you can search on the festival's website. Or to be honest, just Google Battle of the Beasts Cambridge Festival and it'll come up. It'll be so fun for some lockdown scientists to be there to help us decide scientifically which beasts are the best. Well, that's all we've got time for today. But if you want to get in touch with us between shows, we will be absolutely blimmin' delighted to hear from you. You can email us at lockdownsciencepodcast at gmail.com or you can follow us on Instagram at lockdownsciencepodcast or on Twitter at lockdownscience. And you know from today's episode that if you do want to get in touch with us and send us a paper, we will use it. Yeah, we will. And anything you've come across that you think you want to get the lockdown science treatment, just send it on over and we will discuss it on the show. Exactly. And we'll probably even send you a picture of Suki. And also on Twitter, you'll find the full reading list from today's episode. We'll also put that in the podcast notes in case you want to delve into anything that we've talked about today in a little bit more detail. We know how nerdy you are. And if you've enjoyed today's show, please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating and a review. This is the best way that you can support the show and make sure that more people find it. We would be absolutely chuffed if you could do that. It's genuinely so lovely to see new reviews and ratings. And of course, if you like it, tell your friends and family about it. And if you don't like it, tell your frenemies to listen as a way to waste their time. Either way, everyone wins. Yeah, absolutely. We, we, we don't mind who listens as long as as long as long people are listening. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's not true. We want people who like it to listen. It's really good. And I have to say, like, we've had a couple of messages in the last couple of weeks from people who've said how much they've enjoyed it and how much it's actually helped them kind of get through lockdown. And particularly over winter, it's been sort of something to look forward to and, and enjoy listening to. And that is really kind of good motivation for carrying on making it. Yeah, definitely, definitely. We genuinely do love to hear it. So please do let us know what you think. And remember to tune in in two weeks' time for another episode of Lockdown Science on CAMFM. FM.